Calling Dick Tracy. Come in, Dick Tracy. A podcast is in progress. Okay, and welcome to another exciting episode of the Dick Tracy Minute podcast, folks. This is a podcast recapping 1990s comic book movie extravaganza, Dick Tracy, at the rate of one minute of screen time per one episode of this podcast. And my name's Parker. My name is Rob, and you are about to get deep, Tracy. (laughs) God's sake. Okay, and here we are with the fourth minute of the film today, picking up right where we left off uh, in the last seconds of our four poker mobsters' lives. Because this minute, be- <laughs> this party starts with a bang, as Tommy Lee Jones. saying something. Because <laughs> a car drives right through the garage door, and the bullets start flying. They start flying. It's explosive this minute. From the word go, we have the bro saying, Well, little face. And then me, and, and we get the little face responding with, and then they're immediately just met with a barrage of bullets prop money flying through the air like oh, the plop the, the the prop money big time yeah big time prop money tommy guns you know like it's always a good time when we see tommy guns lots of interesting credits uh we see flat top and itchy for the first time in the movie semi semi big big time characters in this movie and uh yeah it's just very very exciting and we see not one but two scenes in this in this minute as well we also see uh dick tracy and tess mm-hmm. at the opera which i'm going to talk about in a little while and we see the first official use of the two-way wrist radio absolutely uh, in the movie which i'm really excited to talk about so what did you think of this minute? Well, uh, right off the bat, a uh, uh, neat little bit of Mandela, which is happening a lot when you go through these films yeah. like this. I kind of remembered the car driving in and multiple, like, Flat Top and Itchy and maybe some, several other, like, henchmen all shooting at once. It's literally, Itchy's the wheelman. It's just Flat Top with one machine gun leaning out uh, the one window of the car, and he shoots everybody before they can even stand up. It's 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 really brutal. It's uh, Every time, it's kind of more brutal than I remember it. Yeah, I... I've actually written down about the Tommy guns as well. Uh, I, I I looked up the internet movie firearms database to see if it had a listing for this movie. It actually doesn't. So I wasn't able to verify that this is indeed a uh, Thompson machine gun or whatever they're called. I'm assuming it is. But how many bullets does that actually hold? Because he manages to shoot everybody in the room dead and then write an elaborate note on the wall with bullets. That's it true. It seemed a little bit ambitious to me. Yeah, I don't have... I can't remember off the top of my head. That's, that's one of those things that would have been a good question for me I think when I was nine years old and uh, you know the eyewitness books on like guns and firearms and espionage were kind of everyone's bread and butter I don't know now I think maybe it's like a 50 round mag but yeah that is a good point we don't see him reload I don't think but he shoots the ever loving bejesus out of everybody (laughs) he comes in on a uh, by the way the the car they drive in on is a Chrysler Imperial by the way Ah, very very beautiful car one interesting thing to note about the cars, this is the first time we see a car, to my knowledge, in the movie. They took out the classic engines and replaced them with modern engines and modern handling systems so that they'd be able to do swifty modern maneuvers in these mm, old cars. Very I thought that cool. was kind of cool. But yeah, he flies in on the car, shoots everybody in the room. Here's the kid kind of scrabbling around in the background, shoots at him a bunch of times, then sort of says, mm, okay, he's escaped. 
<laughs> they never bothered to chase after him, which I'd never <laughs> noticed before this viewing. He, the kid escapes, and then he writes his big letter on yeah. the on the wall, or his big note, uh, Eat Lead Tracy, I think it is. We'll, we'll see that in a future minute, but um, a lot of bullets. Well, that that's the interesting thing. I had, I had the same kind of observation there. First of all, the kid, they make a point of showing the kid's eyes. He watches the shooting happen. He doesn't, like, duck when the car drives in. He, he watches five guys get killed. And that's probably the first time, that even with the kid's rough and tumble life, I'm feeling like that's the first time he's seen any murders, let alone these violent gangland executions. So that's interesting. And then the specific like moment that the kid chooses to, to run happens a few seconds later. Flattop says, I want to leave a little message here. For some reason, that's the kid's cue to, to kind of panic and run out, maybe because he thinks Flattop's uh, going to be distracted for a sec. It's it's interesting as well. Like in, in another movie, you, you could kind of see this nearly being an artifact of an earlier draft of the script, where the kid saw these murders happen, and then the kid is like the the witness that Tracy has to protect for the movie. But it never comes back. The the fact that he saw these murders happen never comes yeah, back again. That's a good point. It's it's unconnected to everything else. Yeah, like <laughs> it could turn into Harrison Ford uh, in Witness with Dick Tracy having to go into witness protection with the kid. Maybe undercover as a homeless man. Big boy, if we don't find that kid, he's going to finger me. He's going to finger me, big boy. <laughs> so Dick Tracy and Finger Tracy. <laughs> Very upsetting. Love it. Um, I, I, I mentioned the script there. Um, the, the script for this movie was written by Jim Cash and Jack Epps Jr., which I think are delightfully kind of uh, old-timey sounding names mm. in the in the tradition of Floyd Mutrix. Uh, <laughs> I, I had a quick gander at their IMDb, expecting not to find anything special because I, I hadn't heard of them before. They've actually got some pretty big deal movies on their on their credits, right? So they, um, they're, a, they're a long-standing uh, writing partnership. They write a lot of stuff together. They wrote Top Gun, which is probably the most Get iconic out. film. Yeah, they they wrote Top Gun, the the script, um, yeah. and and they have a based on characters created by credit on Top Gun Maverick, which usually means that they didn't write the script for the new one, but they're going to get some fat stacks for it anyway. Should it ever hit theaters? Absolutely. Oh, Jesus, yeah. <laughs> They also wrote Turner and Hooch, which I have not seen, but I'm very familiar with the poster for it, and I know that it's about Tom Hanks and a dog. That's a that's a video store box you see on the shelf. Classic, if there ever was one. <laughs> I've I've never seen it as well. I'm pretty sure I could I could paint that cover from memory though. I always mix up Turner and Hooch with every which way, but the one with chimp, uh, chimp, uh, the one with um, Clint Eastwood and a chimpanzee. It's basically the same. Chimp thing. Eastwood. You trying to make a monkey out of uh, it? They also wrote Anaconda, which oh I God. confuse with Snake Snake Eyes quite a bit. But this is the, to me, this is the most interesting. They wrote a movie called The Secret of My Success. Have you heard of this movie? No, uh, I don't think so. Unless is this a is this a '90s rich kid movie? A kid comes rich overnight. One of those. One of the fifty movies like that in the '90s. This is a 1987 movie starring Michael J. Fox. Sold. It's something to do with a guy who loses his job and kind of becomes like a fast talking con I, I don't know what it's about anyway it had a budget of 12 million dollars and it made 111 million dollars in 1987 it out- oh, have I not heard of this movie it outgrossed dirty dancing and robocop <laughs> what the hell 
hell are we talking about? It was the number one movie at the box office for like two months. I gotta see this picture. I've never I, seen I it. I feel like that's that's wild. And that's the thing. Like for every 90s uh, rich kid takes over like a baseball team kind of movie, I yeah. feel like there's an 80s uh, guy has to rebuild his life doing some fast talking <laughs> after getting fired from the, the uh, stock trading firm, having to get sober, all that good stuff. That's wild. Good for them. Good for Jim Cash and, and Jack Epps Jr. Jack Epps Jr. Works try, works try. Um, <laughs> they are now professors in some university. They're living at large, teaching classes about writing for television and movies. So good for them. Damn. And I, I, I hope they make a bunch of money for uh, Top Gun Maverick. Yeah, and speaking of money, I hope they make real money because the money all over the table in this scene. I don't know if you had a close <laughs> look at it. <laughs> but like, even as prop money for movies goes, this is really odd looking. I looked up yeah. what money actually looked like in the 1930s to make sure this wasn't like <sighs> just like a really accurate reproduction of old silver certificates or something. Couldn't find anything that looked like this. It, it looks like Bond notes from the Civil War or something. So interesting thing. So there's only one shot within this minute where you get a good look at the money. They're all really big bills, which I thought was interesting. Mm. Now, I know in America that, I, if I'm not mistaken, the bills get larger by amount. Am I right in saying that? Or do they say... No, this? other way around. Oh, no. I'm th- sorry. I'm thinking yeah. of euros. Dollars mm-hmm. stay the same the whole way. And that's why that Jack Reacher yeah. book had the Jack Reacher. Bingo, yeah. yeah. That, that, that we're referring to a Jack Reacher book wherein uh, they make counterfeit bills using $1 bills. So they turn the $1 bills into like $100 bills or something. Totally ridiculous. Like, yeah. Such a fun book. Anyway, what I was going to say was, number one, yeah, with, with all prop money, it has to look somewhat fake so that if someone finds it in real life, they can't plausibly use it as legal tender. It's it's obviously fake. If, if you were to hold it in your hands, it wouldn't look like a real dollar. But in Dick Tracy, it's like specifically cartoonified. And I, I know we're, we're probably not keen on skipping ahead too often. I do know that later on in the film, you get a good look at one of these dollar bills and it has a big dollar sign on the bill, like mm. like a real kind of cartoon money sort of thing that you'd see in Looney Tunes or something. There's like two big dollar signs on it. Are um, we talking about the boiler room scene? Because you get a good look at some money there, yeah. I think it's the boiler room scene. I feel like either Big Boy or Tracy have a bill in their hand and then later the kid and you see the big sort of like dollar sign. So it's like visibly fake looking money. Stay tuned for that. Stay tuned indeed. I tried to get a look at the beers on the table. Did you get a look at the beers? So what I saw on the table, there's one glass left standing kind of a last supper kind of thing and and it's just kind of like half full of what looks like either wine or beer or soda or something like that and there's then much closer to the camera there's like a giant smashed whiskey bottle or something that like like the table it's it's perfect example one of these details somebody probably spent three hours setting up that table yeah. with all the money and broken glass and everything laid out and it's it's really well done it's and it's shot in this weird it's like overly close up to the camera and you can see itchy and flat top rummaging around behind it but that's all i can make out i, I love the idea of someone from the art department having to sort of imagine what the rodent's favorite drink would be <laughs> i'll have a sidecar missy <laughs> And then, like, little face, I'll just have a glass of milk. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. 
It was better last week. Sorry, sorry, listeners. Uh, I think I think this may be the start of a new segment later on. Not this episode, but we're gonna have to come up with a cocktail for each and every henchman in this oh, film. Oh, that's a great idea. Yeah, <laughs> uh, we'll have to come up with some kind of like yellow cocktail for Dick Tracy himself. Oh, we should have Dermot on the show. Our, our <laughs> mutual friend Dermot and Marisa is a cocktail superstar. Like he he's just really really big into cocktails. He has a really large assortment of uh, different types of liquor and alcohol and stuff, and he makes amazing amazing cocktails and one time I, I was at a party at his house and he he had me design my own cocktail based on spider-man because the spider-man game had just come out that week <laughs> and like i was talking about the themes of spider-man to him and the loss of his uncle the the fear that he was to blame and he was incorporating all of these into the drink somehow and it was amazing and i tasted the drink just and you know stanley it, intended it was red and it was blue and it had like a web pattern on it and it literally tasted like what i imagine spider-man to be so so yeah we'll, we'll have Dermot on in a future episode we'll get him to design cocktails for each of these um these these in the words of our good friend Dermot marisa i may be an alcoholic but you're addicted to cartoons <laughs> and at last we can bring those two hands together uh i i, I want to mention as well just because the credits are flying up throughout all this that there's mm. I mean, there's so much going on in this minute it's incredible uh chester gould he gets a yes. great big fat based on characters created by chester gould and then it goes on yes. for the dick tracy comic strip distributed by tribune media services incorporated it's it's a whole monologue like you'd hear in a ra- like a radio ad for war bonds or something buy the war bonds from dick tracy comic strip distributed by media services incorporated and you can send chester gould to the front like all of that and it's it's right when flat top and Ishii get out of the car too two of the most iconic characters nice little touch like it's it's almost like warren Beatty requested that the company use its older sounding name because it just looked better for this particular film like (laughs) nowadays it would just be oh they're owned by viacom or it's it's owned by like you know some shitty super conglomerate with with only two syllables in its name like yeah tribune media services incorporated i love it this is i think uh if that snyder cut ever happens and comes out unlikely um (laughs) i'm thinking we'll see a credit in it for based on characters originally appearing in national periodical publications see what what we all you know the the dark secret of dick tracy is that there there does exist a four and a half hour cut uh the 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 warren Beatty cut and it's much more violent i'd pay anything for this cut i'd take out an ad in Times square for the warren Beatty cut of dick tracy. when when flat top goes into the to, to kill all the, the the mobsters out of the start of the film he makes little face like eat the the barrel <laughs> of a tommy gun it's like yeah how does it taste little face <laughs> and then like you see his face come out the back of his head <laughs> I don't know. big boy's gonna kill the kid later and then sees he's got the same name as Dick Tracy. Well, we'll see. He's going to make Tess decide who he wants to kill first. <laughs> oh, man. This isn't far off from... I mean, this is a pretty dark and violent film. Actually, brings me to a good question about this scene. We've talked about this sort of thing a million times over the years. You see a movie a million times since childhood, and adults are just doing things in the scenes, and you accept it. <laughs> I'm not sure I've ever really understood why Flat Top and Itchy break up this game, <laughs> kill everybody, <laughs> and shoot the... Me- like, so it's like they can shoot the message into the wall. They're trying to create a crime scene to, to bring out Dick Tracy. But before they do that, they're, they're stealing everybody's wallet. <laughs> Yeah. So it's it kind when I was watching it this time it kind of felt like they were just there to to and they leave all the cash on the table 
They go for the wallets first, and then Flattop says, I want to leave a little message here, like it's an afterthought. So what What was the plan? See what you can find. I'm going to leave a message for Tracy. Sorry. Um, <laughs> that, that wasn't that good. I don't know. I, I feel like I'm not firing on all cylinders today with the impressions. I feel like... Sooner or I, later, it's going to be fine. Oh, I, I feel like... And I was wondering that today as well. It's like, hang on a second. Why exactly is he killing all these guys? I, I, I think what it is is Big Boy is sort of moving his chess pieces into position and he's trying to send a... Me- he's literally trying to send a message to Tracy. Look, I'm the new guy in town. I'm, I'm taking over. I'm taking over Lips Manless's territory. Maybe these guys are working for Lips Manless? Ah, brilliant. I think you're um, absolutely right. And, and again, you know because we have this sort of tan- tangential knowledge of the source material it is kind of weird that like these are established foes of dick tracy but now in this film they're kind of just working for a different mobster but anyway it doesn't really matter as you say you're a kid you're you're watching it adults are doing things and you're going this is great <laughs> that's life Actually, on, on that note, it is kind of an elegant... Having having these other characters show up and shoot all the other mobsters, it's an elegant way to show that the kid hasn't just stumbled onto this one gang of criminals that happen to be really ugly and bizarre looking. Mm. Immediately, they're all killed off by an unrelated criminal who's also uh, ugly and bizarre and made up in Dick Tracy bad guy makeup. So, elegant little way to just show that it's like, no, this is what all criminals look like in this world whether or not they're at this table or not i like that yeah i worth mentioning again i think we mentioned it in the first week that um dick tracy himself was going to have prosthetics in this film and the studio Mm. decided that they didn't want to hide warren Beatty's face because it was the best looking face in hollywood or something like that good call but i i I think the, the the movie kind of dovetailed into being a thing where only the villains are ugly like all the sort of heroic characters in the film uh, like chief uh, police chief brandon and all the various journalists and stuff like that they tend not to be big on the prosthetics it's only really the villains that are Mm. that are made up which is uh, crime doesn't pay crime doesn't pay crime is ugly will we move on to the opera scene i believe so oh actually one other little thing I remembered Flattop laughing hysterically while shooting into the wall, and I'm pretty sure all this time I was actually conflating that with Kevin McAllister in Home Alone laughing uh, during the Angels with Dirty Faces scene, uh, or Angels with Filthy Souls, because yeah, <laughs> Flattop... Dirty Faces. <laughs> yeah, that's the real one, I think. But uh, Flattop just kind of has a pleased kind of... He's pleased with himself, he's got a grin on as he's shooting, and it fades out. It does the iris wipe to the opera there. But I remember him like, <laughs> I couldn't believe it when that was in the I, I, I think Itchy laughs at some point in the scene, does he not? <laughs> Maybe. A, cu- a couple times. It happens a few times throughout the movie, but then yeah, we get a nice circular wipe to the opera. Yes, we are in the opera, and I've... Such a weird and brilliant piece of trivia I want to highlight here. So it's a beautiful shot. We we see kind of a silhouette of Dick Tracy's head on the right and Tess's head on the left. It's very kind of film noir-esque. And then in, in sort of the, in the background, we see an opera going on. We can see a woman on stage. The opera that they are watching is called Die Schlumpf. And according to DickTracy.Fandom.com, which we will most likely be referencing quite often on this podcast, this is a joking reference to Elmer Schlumpf, a deceased villain who caused endless trouble for fearless Fosdick. 
cartoonist Al Cap's parody of Dick Tracy. That to me sounds like a bit of a reach. I don't think Warren Beatty was intending for that to be a reference to that. Uh, I yeah, I I didn't find anything like that. I found that it was called Die Schlumpf, which uh German trans Google Translate for German says translates to the Smurf. That's what the Smurfs are called in Germany. Okay. Yeah. Die Schlumpfs. And I'm pretty sure the Smurfs are originally characters from over there as well. But like my takeaway from this is just it's the brilliance of, again, the details in the film. It's like the billboards. You could have had real old-timey billboards. They made up like 50 original ones, and you can barely even see them. Mm. With this scene, I'd always just assumed, yeah, it's a, it's a real uh, Wagnerian opera. It's public domain. It would have cost them nothing to use the real music and staging from any Wagner opera, right? Or from Des Rheingold or whatever the classic ones you're picturing are. They composed an imaginary opera just for this scene. They got this guy, Thomas uh, Passatieri, who is a, a prodigious opera composer who got into Juilliard when he was 16. He's like one of the, the top American opera, opera composers. He's composed 24 operas of his own. They got him to create this fictional opera just for this little snippet, just to, again, have nothing real in the film, have everything be original. And yeah, and are, are, do you hats off. do you buy that trivia, though, that, that it's based on this parody of Dick Tracy? It's that, that I wouldn't put anything past it. It'd be a heck of a coincidence. That would be like in a James Bond movie if he walked past like Fat Bastard Burrito or something like that. <laughs> it was a reference <laughs> to Fat Bastard and... Austin Powers, like that's how much of a deep cut that is. Stay tuned. <laughs> well done, Warren Beatty, if if that's the case. And and sorry, a credit to uh, my partner Sirsha, who who I I asked her about that uh, piece of music because she would be a little bit more schooled in opera and uh, musical theater than I am, and uh, she was the one who found that trivia. And I was like, what, really? Okay. Yeah, I could not believe it. But in this scene, more importantly, so Dick Tracy and Tess are watching the opera, and we hear that famous crackle calling Dick Tracy, calling Dick Tracy. Come in, Pat. This is Tracy. He answers the call of his wrist radio. We see the other patrons kind of turn and look at him. Very, very much like a uh, the scene in a modern day uh, movie theater where someone answers a phone and everyone turns and glares at them, which I've done many times. Sorry, I turn and glare <laughs> at people. I don't answer my phone in, in, uh, in the cinema ever. Um, it's, it's testament to how much this movie makes us love Dick Tracy that the first thing we see him do is answer a call on a mobile device in a crowded theater <laughs> piss everyone off and yeah. we still love him despite the fact that that's like yours and my most hated quality and other you know like yeah <laughs> so he um he he answers the call tess i think says everything all right tracy and he says fine fine i just oh no no he says that in the next minute sorry i'm jumping ahead anyway he stands up and leaves he says i'll be back and the minute ends i just want to point out mm. just just that this is our first official look at the wrist radio mm -hmm. i i did a little bit of research on the wrist radio it was introduced in 1946 on the Dick Tracy comic strip uh, and it was an invention of industrialist Diet Smith's son Brilliant Smith uh, and like many of Smith's inventions it was kept from the public marketplace and given over exclusively to the use of law enforcement and it got me thinking you know how much better would the world be if instead of you know releasing the iPhone to consumers Steve Jobs like only gave it to you know 
the NYPD. This is a real thing, or is this the story in the comics? This is the story in the comics. <laughs> okay, I wasn't sure if this was some World's Fair product that actually did exist for a while, like like video phones in the 50s, which were a thing, <laughs> but that's incredible. So so just to, to, to talk about some of the capabilities of the two-way wrist radio, it allowed for audio communication between two parties, which to me doesn't really seem to be the case in the film. We see him use the wrist radio with, with loads of different people, but However, do we though? I, is it always somebody calling from the same phone at HQ, or in this it's Pat? Right away he knows it's Pat Patton. It's Pat, and then we see Bug later on in the movie calling him as well. But then, ah, interesting. Maybe he has multiple wrist radios connected to different signals. I don't know. Um, it was powered by a strong atomic battery, and this is the bit that I find really interesting. It used an aerial wire that ran up the inside of the wearer's sleeve. <laughs> That definitely isn't the case in the film. I mean, I don't know. We don't see uh, Tracy roll up his sleeves at any point. Maybe he's rigged up, but I'm inclined... No, I'm inclined to think you're right, because we do see him take one out of a box at one point, and it's ready to go. Yeah. So, yeah. I like to think it's a nice self-contained device. It's nice that they thought that far ahead when uh, these were originally being written in the 30s, though. But, man, the... It's such a cool device. It is. It's really, really cool. And and I should probably mention, I, I definitely mentioned this before, that um, the comic strip wasn't, it didn't just sort of take place in the 30s forever. It did continue to move mm. in real time. And, and to my knowledge, it still does. And they upgraded the two-way wrist radio throughout decades. It became a two-way wrist TV. And then in the 90s, it kind of became this sort of like James Bond multifunctional gadget that had like two-way communication, but then it also had GPS <laughs> and a bunch of stuff. Team glitch from Reboot. And then now, even today, it's it's just this sort of smartwatch now. It's like, well, what's the point? But I, I was reading a series of comics from around 2011 where he ditched the sort of modern futuristic version of the, the wrist watch and he brought back the wrist radio because it was the only way he could co- securely contact headquarters without the calls being intercepted, which I thought... Unhackable. I, I thought that was actually a cool way to bring it back, but they've since retconned that again and brought in some stupid thing that just looks like a Google watch. Um, that is always a good way, though, to, to justify like references to older technology and gadgets and stuff, have, having the analog factor. Yeah, like that's what they did in Skyfall. Like he had the the radio and it was specifically because any sort of digital signal could just be hacked so i don't know if you heard big boy we've got this new thing down at the station it's called radio oh man imagine big boy played by um javier bardem (laughs) (laughs) i have a vision (laughs) of course of course the rats don't eat coconut anymore they eat walnuts (laughs) good for the brain (laughs) if you're not for the people, you cannot <laughs> buy the people. <laughs> Barton would make a terrifying big boy. Oh, God. He'd be hulking her. Oh, man, I'd love to see him up there dancing at the Club Ritz. Oh, man. Tracy, Tracy, Tracy. <laughs> Everywhere I turn, it's Dick Tracy. <laughs> I just want to mention as well, just a fine, final note on the wrist radio. You know, you and me often have these conversations about, like, why don't they just make this that we can just buy it? And why don't they just do this piece of you know, obscure merchandise from this movie we love because, you know, the fans would buy it and we'd love it. And w- we're like, why don't they make this? They did, in fact, make a official Dick Tracy uh, wrist radio that you could buy a couple of years ago. It was yeah. it was an Indiegogo thing where they, they got a bunch of people to donate money so that they could put the research and development into designing basically a real Bluetooth. So it isn't officially, it's not actually a wrist radio. It's a Bluetooth watch that looks identical to the one in the movie. But for some reason, 
I think it ended up failing. They weren't able to follow through with it because the, the costs ended up not working out or something to do with the, the technology didn't match the costs of what they were asking people to donate. And it was all a big failure. And they had to they had to give all the money back to everybody. But th- when they were given the money back, they gave people the option of, do you want your money back or do you want an authentic looking wrist radio that just doesn't have the functionality? <laughs> And uh, to my knowledge, you pick, Rob? Oh, well, I, di- I didn't get in on this because it was just a little bit too expensive, you know, for something that I wasn't quite sure was going to work out. And it didn't. So there you go. Our, my friend Alan Burke, quick shout out to the Lois and Clark podcast. Uh, he appeared on that this week. Really, really good episode. And I'd love to have him on in the future. But he, to my knowledge, was one of the backers on this. And I think he actually got the, the non-operational wrist radio in the end. Now, it, it is a perfectly Jesus. good watch. Like it works as a watch, it just doesn't have the Bluetooth functionality on it. So there I you mean, go. building a good watch is probably harder than a cheap Bluetooth chip this day and age. So that's that's nice. Yeah, I mean, hopefully they get something like that off the ground eventually. Like it would be such a cool thing to own. But it's um, gonna be. I think we're gonna be in three D printing your own territory and spray painting it chrome before the free market takes this one. But in terms of actually the the message Tracy gets, I. It sounds like Pat says five men dead at the December Street Garage, something like that. I couldn't quite make it out. I'm pretty sure it's December Street Garage. December Street Garage. Oh, we'll have to pull up the subs file for that and and, uh, and double check. I wonder, does my copy have a subs file? Sorry, listeners. Find out. Incredibly interesting. Real nice shorthand, though, just to wrap up the minute. The first thing we see Tracy do, he's not in some tough guy situation right off the bat. He's on a date with his girlfriend. Seven Street at Garage. At the opera. Sorry. 7th Street, that makes Seventh more sense Street, than yeah. December Street. Merry <laughs> Christmas. Um, but yeah, like Tracy and Tess, they're not at the fight or something like that. They're at an opera. They're they're a cultured, romantic couple. And he's got to go. Yeah. Tess is annoyed, but she gets it. Like right off the bat, Tess rules in oh, this movie. So One good. of the all-time greatest, greatest uh, leading ladies relationships in any movie. But yeah, right off, it's like we feel her disappointment. It's not the thing where Tracy's being pulled away and it's like, yeah, let's get to the action and stuff. You feel really disappointed and frustrated for right away because it sucks when the person you're with has to leave the movie and, and then he's got to come back later and see how it ends. I, uh, we'll, we'll do a proper kind of uh, tribute to the late, great Glenn uh, Headley. Hedy or Glenn? Headley? I can't remember. Headley. Um, Headley. I always make that um, she She's in a... She's in a bunch of great movies. She's she's really good in a lot of them. But like she had a particularly difficult job in this because not only is she the love interest, she's also the love interest in a movie where there's like a femme fatale Big played time. by, you know, a, a huge star at the peak of her powers who's like the sexiest woman mm-hmm. in the world ever. And you, she has to compete with that and still be the person that you root for and you want the hero to end up with. Absolutely. And she does it really, really well. And I think... Everything kind of complements her performance as well. There's a beautiful love theme that Danny Elfman mm. has for Tess that's distinct from, you know, the themes that he has for the other characters. Like, it's just, everything just sort of works perfectly in a way that I, I don't think it would in a more modern movie. Yeah. And the chemistry she has with Warren Beatty is, is great, but we'll, we'll get into that oh, again. It's, it's phenomenal. Yeah, there's, there's there'll be many, many Tess-centric minutes on this podcast, and I look forward to all of them. And uh, yeah, actually, the last kind of thing I would note is that Tracy wraps up the message with, I'm on my way, which was the number one. This film had a bunch of different taglines. That's by far the one that persists. So that's pretty cool that he just flat out says it. I'm on my way. 
Yeah, the, 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 this uh, this film had like really minimalist posters, and um, if if you if you read kind of comics from the time and stuff, you'd always see the ad for that uh, for for the movie, and it was just the logo of of Dick Tracy looking at his wrist, wristwatch, not unlike the logo we have for our podcast, Ooh, yeah. and it was just the words "I'm on my way," full stop or period, as you guys say, and and it's just such a striking image. Like they were clearly trying to evoke the Batman poster from the year before, but it it works equally well. I think it just looks really really cool. And it's just like, oh, wow, this guy's ready for action. Yeah, like, I'm, I'm not telling any tales out of school when I say uh, I love this movie and have a lot of fondness for every little thing about it. I think, objectively, it's one of the better movie posters of the 90s or maybe ever. They're really tasteful. I, the Dick Tracy posters remind me of the kinds of posters that fans of movies make now. Yeah. The retroactive, minimalist ones that just are iconic and beautiful. And they're all the same primary colors for Tracy but then the the villain variants you get the different colors for their costumes too they're they're all beautiful it was kind of the the height of sort of minimalism in in movie posters and movie marketing um and and they they sort of quickly moved away from it again in sort of the mid 90s mm-hmm. but yeah like like you're saying it's it's definitely kind of coming back a little bit now in sort of fan art and stuff like that and i could see it coming back in the mainstream pretty soon because they tend to catch up with these things but yeah for a film that has like an unparalleled cast they could have so easily done at least one poster that's all just the painted floating heads and they did this kind of it feels more like a set of trading cards right each character Mm. had their own poster there is as far as i know no big poster showing the entire cast together when that would be like the biggest selling point i think for for mainstream audiences at the time so it's interesting that again, like they're just so confident in the look and the style of the film that they marketed it that way instead, and you know it's it's pretty cool. Pretty cool. So uh, this uh, oh yeah, and the minute ends mid sentence on the clock with Tracy saying, "I'll, I'll be, be back. back. I'll be back." <laughs> hey, you know I screen tested for Dick Tracy, but I thought it was a very different movie, and I was I was kicked out of the audition. Very sad. It's too bad James Cameron's uh, Dick Tracy fell through with Schwarzenegger in the oh, lead role. Man. And uh, say Bill Paxton as Flat Top and Michael Bean as they, Big they, they wouldn't Price. have enough They wouldn't have enough fabric to make a yellow coat that size to go around Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> hey, I really like this color. Chop down every banana tree in Bavaria. Yeah, sure. I can play a cop. Hey, <laughs> Al Pacino, I'm a cop, you idiot. Sorry. No, it's no good. That's a movie I'd watch. Yeah, I'd say I'd watch the Schwarzenegger Dick Tracy as well. They told me what my name was. They said Dick. <laughs> oh, shit. Um, so, yeah, I hey, believe it's know, on to the highlight. You know, if you, if you can't. And now, boys and girls, the zip-zapping, super-delicious taste of crackly flakes presents the Dick Tracy Minute Highlights. Favorite <laughs> moment of the minute for me is probably going to be the two-way wrist radio just because I just have so many memories of being nine and wanting to own that so badly and you know you're instantly brought into the functionality of it you know what it's about you know what it's for you know that it's also probably a a a curse as well as a blessing because he's wearing it all the time i mean this is something we can relate to today you know with phones you're constantly on call that you know the office might call and so it's a really really badass gadget but also maybe it sort of creeps into his personal life a bit too much it's that there's just so many layers to it and i just love a cool movie gadget and, and that's what it is so way to go big time like it's like i won't say the same thing because the rules do say we have to have separate favorites but i mean yeah the the wrist radio is right there and and uh i do want to observe they have him use it 
right away. He's already got it at the beginning of the movie. He's getting a classic Dick Tracy come to the scene of the crime call in the first second that we see him. Think of how easily a different, lesser filmmaking team could have had him not get the wrist radio until the last scene in the movie. The the Robert Alton Popeye movie doesn't have him eat spinach until the very yeah. last scene. The Mario Brothers movie doesn't have them put on their red and green jumpsuits until like two-thirds of the way through. Dick Tracy has the... He's a fully formed Dick Tracy at the beginning of this. We never learn a thing about his backstory. It's no. all conveyed through the character and, and yeah, just Oh, terrific. sorry. I meant to mention as well, there is a tie-in comic prequel that came out around the time of the movie uh. where they, they, they established that uh, Bug Bailey was the creator of it. So it's, it's different from the comic strip where it was a different person, Diet Smith's son or whatever. In, in this prequel comic, specifically in the universe of the movie, Bug Bailey was the person who invented the, um, the wrist radio. And you see Dick Tracy get it in, the, in these comics. And I'm trying to track them down, but the, you, you, it, they're not available digitally. Uh, and the only way to get them is to just buy them. And they seem like they cost just a bunch of money. So maybe, but for now, we just have to imagine it in our heads. <laughs> well, I'm sure they're out there somewhere. For I get for my favorite thing about the minute, I would say when Flattop's shooting the message into the wall, that's when you get the produced and directed by Warren Beatty. Projected on the brick wall with the bullets going on behind it. It's it's almost easy to miss because you're looking at the wall being shot full of bullets. But it's a nice kind of throwback to that, that thing I love about the early trailer where instead of Flattop shooting this message, this mysterious message into the wall, it's a shot of Dick Tracy firing with the Tommy gun and then the wall having the words Dick Tracy shot into them as if he's shooting his own name into it. So it's kind of like Warren Beatty through the magic of movie credits did shoot his own name into the wall uh really elegantly like everything I, he does. I, I can't believe i i can't believe i missed that C can we just talk very quickly about written and directed by warren Beatty? just because i am um, produced and like, directed by warren Beatty. oh sorry yeah he didn't write it that's right i remember watching that as a kid and thinking oh my god that's so cool like not only did he get to play the lead character but he was also the boss of the movie Beatty, Beatty. <laughs> <laughs> every position it's bait we'll, we'll need bait. to do a proper warren Beatty tribute in next week's episode when he finally kind of gets some real meaty screen time absolutely all right so off to the races and the next minute we'll find out what the rest of that sentence is when tracy's leaving the theater uh and we'll have him do some actual detective work when he cases this crime scene a lot of big tracy energy in the next minute big big tracy energy and we'll find out what the message that flat top shoots into the wall is which i remember what it is now I'm pretty sure the first 25 or 30 times I saw the movie, I could never remember what it was until you actually see it. So, yeah. All right. Well, Signal Watch is calling. Got to get to the 7th Street Garage. Okay, Tracy, I'll see you later. <laughs> You're best yet. All right. Till next week, loyal listeners, or next episode, whenever that shall be. We'll be on our way. <laughs>